0: So someone wrote in and asked about CPS mandated reporting. So someone uh, wrote in and, and asked about when we as therapists hear about child abuse and we have to report that to the state, we have to report that to Child Protective Services. Uh, the, the person asked a bunch of questions about that. So in this episode, I thought I would review all the various laws and ethical Situations and other things that I've heard from my friends at CPS because it's an it's a extremely complicated thing. I thought I would provide all that I know about it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm chair of the couple and family therapy program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. This is an episode just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, This episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode and other exclusive episodes, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. And when you become a patron, you get access to various different episodes. And also remember that 20% of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. Okay, welcome to the patron zone, patrons. We love you very, very much. There's a thing in Washington state and in many other states, they have similar names or different names, but essentially every state in the union has a, a child protective service agency of some kind. So in, in Washington state, it's called CPS, Child Protective Service. It's a part of DSHS, which is Department of Social and Health Services, And they are a bunch of state employees that are social workers or county employees, anyway, government employees of some kind, that are tasked with taking reports from the public, from mandated reporters regarding child abuse. And what they do with that information is... They either say, well, it doesn't really deem an investigation, or they follow up with an investigation, and then they might actually start taking legal actions against the abuser. Charges might be filed. The police might get involved. I'm not a lawyer, and I don't work for the state, so I'm only aware of it in as much as I've worked in parallel with them in a a number of situations so this this supervisee is is saying, "You know what? I just heard something from a client recently, and I need to consult about it because I think I might have to call c p s This is always a a big deal for therapists for some therapists, it's such a routine part of their job that it's not a big deal, but for most therapists it's it's a big deal, for instance, for myself." I haven't had to call CPS in, I don't know, 10 years, maybe longer. It's pretty rare that I run into a situation where I have to do that. But a lot of my supervisees work at local agencies, and there are a lot of opportunities for for CPS calls. And let me get more specific here. So in Washington State and in many other states, there are what we call mandated reporters, meaning that particular kinds of professionals are legally bound to report any kind of child abuse to CPS or abuse of dependent adults, what they call So if you have a, an elderly adult who is suffering from Alzheimer's and is under the care of the other people and that, that dependent adult is being abused, then you also are mandated to report that. There's a lot of confusion and a lot of anxiety around this, but essentially – well, let me back up and say the professions I can think of off the top of my head are medical professionals. I believe all of them, all of the teachers, people who work in in schools, I'm guessing at least public schools. I don't know about private schools, and all therapists, psychologists, counselors, social workers – all these people are what they call mandated reporters. And I believe the the origin of the law, of this law in various states, was uh, probably a case in which a child was being abused and probably was killed by their abuser. And when they investigated, they found out that, that many professionals had known about the abuse and just didn't report it. And so, actually, let me look this up. Okay, so a quick look on the internet. It looks as though in 1974, the U.S. Congress passed the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, which was, uh, its purpose was to provide funds to states such as Washington State to develop agencies to protect children from child abuse, such as Child Protective Services, or CPS, and other sorts of services to, again, help to prevent serious injuries to children. So uh, apparently at the time, uh, there was a, a movement to end child abuse, and what was defined as child abuse back then was quite severe injury to children. It wouldn't be things like spanking or stuff like this. It would be probably our more more severe physical abuse cases. And then later on, the uh, definition of abuse to children was expanded beyond physical abuse to include things like sexual and emotional abuse and also neglect and even exposure to to domestic violence between the parents. And it also uh, increased the amount of reporting, which increased the Child Protective Service agencies. You need more, more staff and more people to investigate. And according to research, apparently, even though the number of, of allegations and reports are increasing year after year, the actual uh, number of substantiated cases Meaning the actual cases of actual child abuse are actually either staying the same or declining over the years due to all of our efforts in our society to to end child abuse. So that's that's nice. This is a, a government agency that has played a major part in making our lives better for our children. We all know that child abuse can lead to a lot of really horrible things, not only Does it obviously lead to immediate suffering for the children? But we all know, according to research that abused children tend to have a lot of problems throughout childhood and into adulthood, including uh, abusing their own children, criminal behavior, substance abuse, personality issues, depression, suicide, all all the things go up that are bad when it comes to uh, abuse in children. So, it's pretty interesting. So again, according to the internet, in the United States in 2009, there were 3.3 million calls to CPS. That's all 50 states uh, from the span of 1992 until 2009. So roughly the past 20 years, the the amount of substantiated cases in the United States of sexual abuse declined by 62% physical abuse decreased 56% and neglect by 10%. So again in the last 20 years uh, the the amount of substantiated cases the amount of actual cases that have been found to be to be actual sexual abuse physical abuse and neglect have declined by anywhere from 62% to 10%. So that that this is a good sign. Whether or not that actually means abuse is on the decline, it's always hard to say when it comes to this sort of research. But it's it's probably pretty solid evidence, and it it follows the you know the assumption that our society is getting better at detecting and helping people in situations like this. So that's that's a very good sign. Again, according to the internet, it says that approximately eighty five percent of the calls to CPS do not warrant investigation or are not substantiated. So that's an interesting statistic. The vast majority of calls to CPS don't warrant, investi- don't warrant an investigation or are not substantiated. I would say anecdotally that's true in my experience. Because part of the reason is because we're mandated reporters. I'm a mandated reporter. And what CPS tells us is that we have to report everything. We're not supposed to, as mandated reporters, make a a judgment call as to whether or not something should be reported or not. If it crosses the line at all, we are supposed to report. And if we don't, we can get in trouble. And if we report something that doesn't need to be investigated, we don't get in trouble. So you can never get in trouble for – well, I mean, you can get in trouble by the client because if you break confidentiality for no reason – then your client can sue you. But when it comes to a gray area, in terms of your career as a mandated reporter, you're better off safe than sorry. You're better, you're better off reporting a gray area uh, and, having it, and having the CPS person say, oh, that's no big deal, don't bother us with that, than to not report something and then later down the line get in trouble and have your license taken away or have some other kind of sanction put on you. So according to the Revised Code of Washington, this is what it says, just to give you the legalese according to the law of Washington. Mandated reporters must report child abuse or neglect to law enforcement or CPS when they have reasonable cause to believe a child has suffered abuse or neglect. So pretty straightforward. So again, mandated reporters must report child abuse or neglect to, to law enforcement or CPS when they have reasonable cause to believe a child has suffered abuse or neglect, so this is a very broad uh, mandate. You know, uh, you know what constitutes abuse or neglect. So it, you know, it's a very um, so it, again, it causes a lot of reports, and a lot of reports are um, not investigated because because you know, say a lot of things are like things that don't get followed up on are. Uh, let me just think of a random example so let's say me I'm a therapist a uh, family comes to me, and the child tells me that his father got angry and spanked him uh I wouldn't personally report that because physical punishment is doesn't doesn't uh um concern me unless I uh find out that it's severe enough to uh, deem it to be abusive in my estimation. But with other therapists and other mandated reporters, they might not want to take that chance and they might they might report that. And CPS in general doesn't respond to reports like that. If you said, yeah, I was talking to Johnny and Johnny said that his dad spanked him, uh, should I report this to you? And CPS would say, no, it's doesn't you know? Was there a mark? Did, did the child indicate that any kind of uh, you know physical harm happened to him? You know, did he bleed from it? Could he? Was he injured? Uh, and you say no, there was no indication of that. Then CPS wouldn't fall through. I don't know if that's a very good example, but and incidentally, uh, different ethical codes comment on on mandated reporting uh, responsibilities so not only do we have a law in the state that mandates us to do this to make report to make reports but also our ethical codes that are given to us by our professional organizations also comment on it sometimes and since i am trained in psychology and in married and family therapy i follow the apa ethical codes as well as the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy codes. And the APA, or the American Psychological Association Ethical Codes, state that I do not have to report when I hear things when I'm off duty. So last time I checked the APA ethical codes, it indicated that if I'm off duty, meaning I'm just like at a party or something, and I hear about uh, child sexual abuse or child physical abuse. I don't have to report that cuz I'm not I'm not on duty. I'm not I'm not working as a professional in that in that situation. And so I'm not mandated to, to report. The law doesn't say anything about that. The law doesn't stipulate whether or not I'm on the job or not as far as I know. And so uh, so the MFT, the marriage and family therapy codes don't don't comment on that at all. So it doesn't provide any any guidance on that Another question I get about reporting is you know what if someone told me as an adult they're they're 45 years old and they tell me that they were sexually abused by someone when they were a child well most people would say well of course you don't report that it happened 30 years ago but actually there is no there is no comment on that in the law as far as I'm aware of and i am mandated to report accounts of abuse and neglect on children and vulnerable adults to cps even if the incidents happened decades earlier now most of the time cps is going to say so so you're calling me about something that happened 30 years ago well there's no point in following through on this so but there's nothing in the there's nothing in the law that says You know, if it happened this amount of time in the past, then you don't have to report it. It just says you have to report all, all, let's see, let's go back to the language here. Mandated reporters must report child abuse or neglect to law enforcement or CPS when they have reasonable cause to believe a child has suffered abuse or neglect. So it doesn't say anything about how much, how long ago. So it, you know, it's just another interesting thing. Having said that, when I talk to CPS people about this issue, it's open for interpretation. Most CPS workers interpret this to mean if the perpetrator does not have current access to victims, then you don't have to report it. Cuz the whole idea of CPS is to is not to tell on people, it's to prevent abuse from happening in the future. And the only way to know who is perpetrating these Crimes is to is to have people report, and so if you make a if you hear about something, and there you know say uh, you know a client who's fifty years old tells me, yeah, when I was a child, my dad sexually abused me, but now he's dead. Well, he's not going to hurt anyone else, so there's no point in making a report to CPS. And so many clinicians, including myself, will make a judgment call based on that because if it did come to light. And CPS did find out about it, and they came to me and said, why didn't you report it? I'd say, well, because the perpetrator is dead. And CPS would say, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. But some people just say stay on the safe side. We'll just make those reports. Also, another CPS worker once told me that if a victim of child abuse is now an adult, that you don't have to make the report unless you believe that the perpetrator is uh, currently abusing other people and perhaps CPS would be interested in that information. So again, CPS is mostly concerned. uh, Their primary concern is children that are in a situation where they are likely to be abused uh, soon. So mandated reporting, even though the law is very open-ended, Mainly what c p s is concerned with is you know little Johnny, ten years old, tells a therapist, my mommy is hitting me hard with uh, several different uh, things that she has in her house, like she hits me with sticks and she hits me with with paddles and she hits me with shoes and she throws things at me and and she she cut my arm the other day. CPS is is interested in those situations because they want to stop those situations from happening. They're not concerned with things that happened years and years ago and they're mainly concerned with what's with what's happening now. And uh, something that I often will talk with families about is for whatever reason there's this massive misconception about what CPS does when they find out about abuse. The massive misconception is that if CPS is called and they take action, then they immediately take the children away from the family and they, and they never give them back. I can tell you from experience that this is very, this is a very rare situation. In fact, I would say that the, the initial investigation almost never results in this situation, even if the abuse is quite severe. What CPS is mainly concerned with is ending the abuse. They don't need to take your children away from you. The other thing is, is even if CPS wanted, which they very much do sometimes, want to take children away from their parents, they don't have the authority legally because to take children away from parents is, a, is an extreme act by the state. I mean, to think that the government can come into your house and take your children away from you, this is an extreme act, and the government can only do these things when they have enough evidence and they can show the judge that they have done all the things necessary to try to prevent that. And so it's very rare that that even happens in severe cases. But probably the most important thing to know is that the state doesn't have money to house all these children. And so, in my experience, CPS actually doesn't take children away when they should. The perception in the public is that CPS, all they do is come in and take children away, but in reality, in my opinion, they don't take children away enough. They very rarely take children away, and uh, they should be doing it more often. Now, you might know some famous cases in which CPS was abusive or power-hungry or took you know bad actions. And I that certainly can be the case. It's a similar to police officers. If you film enough police officers doing their job, you're going to come across some bad apples or some bad decisions. And CPS is no different than that. But in general, CPS workers are, are very able and are very wise. And when they hear situations of abuse, they... They think very carefully about it, and they think very carefully about what to do. And in general, they want to keep the children with the parents. And what they do, actually, what the, what they've hired me to do at times, is to go into the home and help the parents parent better. the The assumption is that when a parent is using abuse, it's because they don't know what else to do. They're trying to discipline their children in a responsible way, but they're losing control or they don't have options or they, weren't, they didn't learn how to parent children effectively. And so professionals such as myself can, if, if they get help from us, then they don't need to use that form of punishment anymore because they have other effective parenting skills at their disposal. So, so that's the reality of the situation that so many people don't realize. And when they don't realize that, They won't call CPS because a neighbor worries, well, if I call CPS, they're just going to take his children away and I don't want that to happen to them. When in reality, if they called CPS, they wouldn't do that. They would actually send a therapist in all likelihood like me to the home and actually help the parents. Also, another question I often get about CPS reporting is that we are mandated to report accounts of abuse and neglect even if they don't involve our clients. So if... Johnny tells me about his friend, Timmy, who got abused, I have to report that. So any any informa- any information I know about abuse and neglect, I have to report. Another question that I sometimes get is, well, I don't know the name of the abuser, and I don't know the name of the victim. I don't know when it happened. I, I know almost no information. Well, we still have to report what we know. We still have to call CPS and say, look, this is what I heard, and this is what I know. And along these lines, CPS will sometimes pressure mandated reporters to investigate, to gather information, to make it easier for CPS to investigate. But it's actually not true. We, we are under no obligation to, to actively gather information for CPS. That's the state's job. They need to investigate it. So what I tell my supervisees is whatever you hear from your clients or whomever is is telling you this sort of stuff then that's what you report but you don't actively seek more information unless it's pertinent to the treatment. But if a clinician wants to investigate that's okay but but what I tell clinicians is it's not your job to investigate. You're a therapist, you're there to provide treatment you're not there to investigate crimes and a lot of clinicians are really quite happy when I say that because it's a it's an interesting role for therapists to get into when we're tasked with helping people and then we hear about abuse and neglect and instantly now we're an arm of the state we're an arm of the government all of a sudden in one moment we're there to heal and to help and to listen and then we hear one tiny little thing and instantly our role changes into an, into an, a, an arm of the state. We become a, 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 an agent of the law, essentially. I mean, I'm emphasizing we're not actually an agent of the law, but, but we become a different role. We're no longer there necessarily to provide therapy. We're there to transfer information to the government which I actually am not all too comfortable with personally. I'm all for reducing child abuse, but I don't appreciate as a therapist being forced to do something without the ability to contemplate whether or not it's best for the client. And uh, a lot of clinicians agree with me on this. Having said that, I absolutely will follow my duty and always have but I don't appreciate being forced to break confidentiality. There are many situations in which, uh, clinically speaking, it would be very um, detrimental to the client overall to follow the law in in this situation. I'm not coming up with good examples, but let me see if I can come up with with one right now. Um, So let's say, again, little Johnny, 10-year-old, comes to me and says that his dad uh, lost control and and used severe corporal punishment with him uh, last night. Well, let's say that I'm in beginning a treatment with this family, and me and the father we haven't met yet. And in my mind, I think you know what I can change the father, or no? Let's let me back. Let's say I have met the father. And we don't have a good relationship yet, but I have met him, and he's engaged in therapy for the first time. I've, I've managed to get the dad to engage with me and to agree to come to my office and talk about parenting. And then little Johnny tells me about this thing. Well, in my mind, I could say, you know what, I know, I'm, I'm fairly certain that if I can develop a good relationship with the father, I can get him to stop abusing his child. I'm fairly certain about that, and I'm and I'm in the best position to do that. And he, the dad is o- only talking to me; he's not talking to anyone else. I, I'm I'm I can do this, but because I'm a mandated reporter, I now have to report what Johnny told me to the state, which might uh, risk my relationship with the father. The father could never; he might the fa- after. So Johnny tells me about the abuse. I mandated report. I I can't, I can't contemplate whether or not it's going to help the treatment or not. I just have to report it. I report it. CPS investigates, you know, tells the dad, uh, there was an allegation. The dad said, who made the allegation? They could say, well, the family therapist did. And the father could be like, okay, well I'm done with family therapy. He could pull out of therapy. The state could determine that it's not that big of a deal And they don't follow it up with anything. The father agrees he's never going to do it again. And the father also ends therapy and never goes to therapy again because of the horrible, humiliating experience of being investigated. So in that situation, did the CPS mandated reporting actually do any good? We could say in terms of the way I told the story, we could say that it didn't. It actually harmed the situation. Because now the family is not getting therapy, the family is suffering, their their patterns are getting worse, and uh, the abuse might actually be continuing. And since the father is now telling the son, look, never tell anyone about this again, or else I'll beat you even harder, the child is now even isolated further. So <clears throat> there are situations that, uh, and there are many, many situations like this, by the way, but because of the way the law is, I I have no choice. I I just have to report. So, yeah. Having said that, there are many mandated reporters, including myself to some extent, that are uh, afraid of of making reports or lazy or whatever. And when they don't do that, children uh, suffer. Their their the abuse continues, and so this mandated reporting situation has in my estimation, been overall very good for the movement of trying to reduce child abuse. So overall, it's it's a good thing, but I wish that uh, us clinicians just had a little bit more leeway. Also, according to the law, we must make the report within 48 hours. We can't wait. So this is another kind of problem because... What if uh, your supervision meeting or your consultation meeting is beyond 48 hours? Um, you don't have time to consult. You have to, you have to report right away. Having said that, clinicians out there, if you ever are contemplating a report, you should, you should consult with somebody before you do that. It's very important, particularly if you're under supervision. You should absolutely talk to your supervisor before doing that. Also, it should be pointed out that according to the Revised Code of Washington, if a mandated reporter does not make a report when they are supposed to they will be charged with a gross misdemeanor and um you know so it's they, they'll be charged with a crime it's not a felony but it's a it's a, i don't know what a gross misdemeanor is uh but it's some sort of misdemeanor <laughs> Also, another question that I often get is can I make the report anonymously? No, you cannot make the report anonymously. You have to state your name. It doesn't it doesn't you can make the report anonymously if you feel like it, but that doesn't fulfill your mandated reporting responsibilities. You have you have to say your name. And just some tips that I have heard from friends that work at CPS, they will say the following things. They'll say when in doubt call CPS. Another thing they'll say is a parent can hit their child even with an object like a belt. So just because a, a parent has used corporal punishment like spanking their child or even hitting their child with a belt, that doesn't necessitate a report to CPS. So it's it's the severity at which the uh, physical abuse occurred. So if, if they spank the child... Uh, you don't know whether or not that's abuse or not it it has to be severe and causing of an injury and uh, or or potentially scaring the child uh, sufficiently so again spanking is okay that's that's one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that cps is going to prosecute if if parents spank their children in fact a lot of a lot of people at cps want their children want their parents want parents out there to discipline their children a lot of people that i know at dshs and cps are actually hoping that parents have more structure instead of less and so if spanking is a part of that structure then that's fine they they just want the parents to be utilizing corporal punishment in a responsible non-abusive way also they i've also heard that we should not report a, an incident in which a child has witnessed uh, one incident of DV, but we might want to report if a child is witnessing chronic domestic violence. Another thing that uh, CPS uh, friends of mine have told me is that we should report if children witness sex. So if parents are having sex in front of their children, then we should report that. Also, a common question that I get is, "I I did a home visit because I'm providing in-home therapy, and the house was disgusting. Should I report that to CPS?" And the answer is no. Just because a house is is gross or dirty or something, that that doesn't necessitate, necessitate a CPS call. It's something that a lot of people want to call CPS about because. There's a lot of people's homes that are quite disgusting to a lot of therapists, but it doesn't necessitate a CPS call. The government is not interested in forcing parents to clean their houses. <laughs> it- you know, the government you know is interested in a lot of things, but they're but they don't want to get involved in 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 the uh, the cleaning of people's homes or forcing people to clean their homes. That's something the government is not interested in. Um, also, we're not supposed to report lice. That's another thing. It's like I, my little Johnny had lice in his hair. Should I call CPS? No, lice is you know it happens. It's 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 perhaps an indication of of something that's going on at home, but you don't know that, and it's it's not a big deal. If if the lice is chronic, or uh, there seems to be a, a severe lack of attention giving to ch- to children, and there's several lines of evidence going towards that, then yes, make the report. But just because the child has lice does not mean that you make a report. Also, friends at CPS will tell me, and I fully agree with this, is to really contemplate your cultural bias. Just because a parenting technique is different or, or seems abusive to you does not mean that it necessarily is. And so say you grew up in a Anglo-Saxon home. I don't know if that's the term. Let's <laughs> say a white American home. And you're middle class and your parents never spanked you. And they, you, your parents used timeouts and your parents were very nice people and would discipline you by, again, timeouts or taking away your Nintendo or something like that. And then you have a family in which the mom routinely uses physical force to direct the children, either through spanking or or pushing or grabbing things or, you know, there's a lot of physicality in the parenting. And uh, you look at it and you say, well, this is abusive. I'm going to call CPS. Well, just because you grew up in one kind of house and this is a different kind of house from a different culture does not mean that you should make a report based on your own gut instinct. You really have to look at it more carefully. What's what's the physicality doing to the children? Is it actually abusive? And the again, the the markers that I use is is really a clinical marker in that you know, it, if parents use physical uh, punishment or physicality in their parenting and the child receives it well or is neutral about it, then that, in my book, isn't abuse. But if the child uh, receives it as a very scary thing and the child is living in fear of their parents, in a, in a, not, you know, we should all fear our parents in some ways, but, but, but they're, they're fearful for their life. They're fearful of being injured. They're feel fearful of, of some kind of major injury. Then this is a a terror that the child is experiencing, and and this is a marker of abuse. Another marker of abuse is if there are marks, if there are, if, if there's physical injury due to the abuse. I mean, I, I'm sure most of us would agree that when a child is being disciplined, saying you know, say a child. Comes home after curfew. You know, say little Johnny is eight years old and he's allowed to play at the playground until a certain hour. And and he comes home two hours past curfew, and the parents are furious and they didn't know where he was and they were scared. And they really want to emphasize the importance of coming home on time because they're worried about little Johnny being abducted or getting run over by a car in the middle of the night. And so they really want to emphasize it and they want to spank him. Well, if the parents spank him to the degree that he has bruises up and down his back, or he has a, you know, he, he started bleeding from something, then I think most of us would agree that that was going way too far. You can certainly spank a child and discipline them in all the various ways that you do and try to correct their behavior in all the various ways that you do without injuring the child. <laughs> So so those are the two, two. But, you know, you'll hear different things from different clinicians and different CPS workers and different prosecutors and different police officers and different judges. This is a, a very squishy gray area in the law. And there's, there's very little guidelines when you actually look at the law. For instance, according to the law, Physical abuse means the, quote-unquote, non-accidental infliction of physical injury or physical mistreatment of a child. So, again, what does, what does physical injury exactly mean, right? Uh, what, if, what if a child has a very small, small, slight scuff mark from being spanked? Is that physical injury? I don't know. They go, the law goes into more specifics and says that physical abuse includes, but is not limited to... Such such actions as throwing a child, kicking a child, burning a child, or cutting a child. Striking a child with a closed fist. So that's interesting. So you can spank with an open hand. But you but if you strike a child with a closed fist, then, then that's considered abuse. Shaking a child under the age of three. So if you shake a child, because you can actually injure a child's brain or even kill them if you shake them too hard. If you interfere with a child's breathing, this is considered abuse. If you threaten a child with a deadly weapon, like I'm going to shoot you with this gun, that's abuse. Doing any other act that is likely to cause and which does cause bodily harm greater than transient pain or minor temporary marks or which is injurious to the child's health, welfare, or safety. So again, uh, basically what it's saying is uh, doing any other act that is likely to cause or does cause bodily harm that is greater than transient pain or minor temporary marks. so if the physical uh, punishment uh, does a, a minor temporary mark like a minor temporary bruise or reddening, maybe if the spanking just makes your your butt red. Uh, temporarily for a couple hours, then that's not abuse. Or if it causes just transient pain, so pain in the moment. But if the pain lasts for hours, then that might be considered abuse. Another question that sometimes comes up is, do we report abuse to animals and pets? And the answer is no. Can we make those reports? You know, that's another question. But are we mandated to report when a, an animal is being abused? Uh, no, we, we are not mandated to make those reports. So just looking up the various professions uh, regarding who who are the mandated professionals, uh, well, these people are child care providers, uh, caregivers, clergy, as I mentioned before, counselors, and marriage and family therapists and psychologists, Medical examiners and coroners, which is interesting, coroners, other health care providers, police, school teachers, coaches, people who work in schools, social workers, and abortion clinic staff, which is interesting. So, you know, most of them are health care people, mental health care people, police, teachers, clergy, child care providers, these sorts of people. Some other professionals are mandated to report. For instance, computer technicians are sometimes <laughs> mandated to report stuff. Commercial film or, ph- or f- photograph processors. I'm guessing that this is if they, you know, so if in some states, uh, 12 states to be specific, and Guam and P- Puerto Rico apparently. If they're developing film and there's film, uh, there's pictures that they are developing in which a child is being neglected, probably sexually, is the thing. Then they are mandated to report that. Fourteen in fourteen states, substance abuse counselors are reported are mandated reporters, which is interesting. You would think all substance abuse counselors would be mandated reporters, but apparently not. Only seven states and the District of Columbia. Include domestic violence workers on the list of mandated reporters, which is interesting. Again, you would think all domestic violence reporters would be the same as therapists, but apparently not. According to what I'm reading here, not every state requires that the reporter provide their name. Uh, Washington is one of the states that uh, I think you're supposed to provide your name. So this is interesting. According to this report here, it says that No one shall be required in in Washington State, no one shall be required to report when he or she obtains the information solely as a result of privileged communication. And I think this is saying that clergy and optometrists, for some reason, reason, and psychologists do not have to adhere to this mandated reporting law because they're They're hearing it as a result of, if they're hearing, if they're learning this information in a privileged relationship, meaning a relationship in which they have privilege of of confidentiality, then they don't have to report it. That's interesting. I, I don't think I ever knew this before. It also says, the department shall make reasonable efforts to learn the name, address, and telephone number of the reporter. But it doesn't say if we have to provide it. But I've been told by CPS that we have to provide it. Uh, I, th- I think the reason why mandated reporters have to have to provide it is if it comes back around that we knew about it and they ask us, did you make a report? And we said yes. And they say, well, prove it. And we say, well, I made an anonymous report. Then that's not proof that you made the report. So I, I, I think that's why. Another thing here says... Uh, According to the law, it says the department, meaning the Department of Social Health Services, which is the umbrella uh, department over CPS, the department shall provide assurances of appropriate confidentiality of the identification of persons reporting under this section. So they're not saying they won't, but they're saying provide assurances of appropriate confidentiality. That's very unclear as to what that means. In my experience, CPS usually says who made the report, especially if it was a therapist. All right, well, I hope that answers some of your questions out there, if you had them. I think it's a fascinating area, and it's an area in which I, as a supervisor, field many, many questions. And since it's it's not my area of expertise to know all the ins and outs of these laws, it's actually quite a boggling area to me at times and when i enter a sticky situation i'll consult with with experts in this area but as a supervisor i need to know more than the average therapist and i just told you information that i either had quickly available to me or that was off the top of my head so if i'm wrong about any any of it let me know and if you have questions let me know well that does it for another episode of psychology in seattle thank you so much patrons for becoming patrons We love you very, very much, and Happy New Year. And take care of yourself because you deserve it, especially at New Year times.